Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship of Huntsville. If you are visiting with us this morning, we'd love for you to fill out a card. It's called the Connection Card. And it should be one underneath the seat in front of you. You can fill it out electronically or do it in, by pen or pencil. And then drop it in the box in the back, which is where we take our offerings as well. So, again, welcome. And if you want to know anything about the church, the ministries, there are people to talk to. But you can also write that on that card and somebody can contact you. There's also information on our website as well. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 12. No, we are not done with John. <clears throat> so one of the great things about CF and how he teaches, he's very detailed, which I particularly appreciate. And I know that most of you or all of you do. That's probably why you're here for many reasons, other reasons too. But... Um, He's going through a lot of detail, so actually he's still in John 1, 1 through 3, and based on what he told me this morning, he's going to be there for a while. So I had told you before that I think it's going to take him five years to go through John. I'm going to, I'm going to extend that by another five years. <clears throat> I mean, it's all good, all right? It's all good. But that means that if you have a high schooler, your high schooler will be uh, through college and probably married and with child. <clears throat> Just think that through, and uh, he'll be finishing up, wrapping up John at that point. So there will be a point in time when the uh, highway through uh, Huntsville will be done. And one day you'll be driving on that new highway master system, going to church and listening to CF teaching John. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So what we ought to do is uh, take predictions and the winner gets a cruise or something like that, I don't know, with CF. Uh-huh. I'm not buying. But I mean, you, you, you go on a cruise with CF and Kathy. I, I don't know what that would be like if they've ever been on a cruise or you can ask their family. Anyway, good. It's fun. Oh, there we go. So a fun cruise with CF. None of that's true, so please do not quote me on any of that. Let's get to the uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. So he's going to talk about Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. And at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. He and his disciples were hungry, began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what Daniel, sorry, Daniel, David, can't get my own name correct there, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your truth. And I thank you for all the times that you bring things unto understanding to a, a point in which we can see what it says and be able to understand what you are saying and who you are. 
Lord, I pray for CF and for his words this morning, and they may be your words. You speak truth to us. We just say this in your name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. If you got your Bibles, uh, do open them to Matthew uh, chapter 12. But I am still on uh, John where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word there for word, logos, means he is the full embodiment or revelation of God. And what we're looking at now is we're looking at how is that expressed in the life of Christ? How did Christ demonstrate that he was fully God? Well, today's topic is divine authority. It means that he has authority over those things that only God has authority over. And so your logical conclusion, if you're, if you're true to your logic, you'd have to say he's God. There's no doubt about it. He's assuming authority over those things. And some of the things that we're going to see that he says this morning uh, even reveal it to a greater extent uh, as he reveals that. And so this story here that we're on is the story of when the disciples were going through the grain fields and plucking grain, and then the Pharisees stepped in and addressed that situation. So we're going to take a look at that. We're going to see today how he's Lord of the Sabbath, how he's Lord over sin, and how he is also Lord over eternal destiny. And all that will relate to the fact that he is fully God. So let's pray and then we'll take a look. Father, we come before you thanking you, Lord, for this day, for this opportunity to learn. Pray that I'd have clear instruction, that I would explain your word accurately, and that your people could receive it and put it to use in our life to serve you, Father. Direct us in our time of study, and might you be honored by it. And we pray this in Christ's name, Lord. Amen. So, uh, David read it. I'm not going to read the passage again. We're just going to go ahead and jump into it and start breaking it down. We have the setting in verses 1 and 2, and the setting is, at that time... Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. <clears throat> but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And we have two contrasts here. The first verse, you have Jesus going through the grain fields on the Sabbath and the disciples plucking grain and eating it. And then you come to verse two and it says, but, and so what you have there is a contrast. So it's gonna show you how that activity was contrasted with the Pharisees. What the disciples are doing following Jesus through this grain field, it most likely is a wheat field and they're just grabbing the, the, and stripping some wheat off in their hand. Grain obviously was at that time when it was ripe. They rub the grain through their hands like that, blow the chaff off, and eat the seeds of wheat. I've eaten wheat seed before uh, because all you have to do with wheat seed is grind it up and you have flour. And, uh, you, you know, you make bread and various other things with it. So eating it straight, it actually is, is pretty decent. It tastes pretty good. It's not as tough on your stomach as raw corn. Uh, and so it's, it's, very, it's very palatable and easy to eat. And it was a common practice. I mean, it's just a snack is what it is, is what they're doing, really. 
And it says, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of that day. And the Pharisees had taken the law of God and had actually extended it to a further level. The Pharisees were very concerned about human behavior and making sure everyone adhered to the law. So what they would do quite often is they would add things to the law that God never put in there. They would put requirements on the people. Matter of fact, you can go later on in Matthew, I think it's 23rd chapter, 21st chapter, somewhere in there. And Jesus just rips the Pharisees to pieces. They were your classic legalists. If you were in that day and time, though, and, and followed any kind of religion, you would look up to the Pharisees with honor and respect because they were preserving the word of God. That's what they were doing. They were preserving the ways of God. They were ensuring that God's purposes were fulfilled in, in the Jewish community of that day and time. But the downside to it was they had added rules to it. Now, what they're accusing the disciples of here is work on the Sabbath, what they're accusing them of. Because when they strip that grain and they rub it between their hands, they are harvesting grain and harvesting was considered work. Uh, pretty kind of a stretch there, but, but that's, that's honestly what it was. It was viewed as, a, as, a, as adding work on the Sabbath. What was the purpose of the Sabbath? Okay, the word Sabbath, the word that is used is the word Shabbat. And the word means to cease, to rest from work, to celebrate God. Now I add that last part on there because that's one of the purposes of it. A man works six days a week. He gets to the end of the week. He should be able to stop his work and celebrate. It was built upon God when he created the heavens and the earth. He created for six days. Then he ceased from his work. Okay. He didn't completely stop doing everything. He just stopped creating. Okay. And so the idea behind the Sabbath was to cease from your work so you could focus upon God. And in that day and time, the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday, and it continued until sundown on Saturday. All right. So it encompassed the daytime of Saturday and the nighttime of Friday from sundown until sunrise the next day. That was the Sabbath. Interesting thing is that is still the Sabbath. That is still the Sabbath. The Sabbath was never moved to Sunday. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sunday is the day after the Sabbath, or if you will, the first day of the week. Okay? That's what it is. Now, a lot of Christians believe that Sunday, that the Bible has moved or that Christianity has moved the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, but that's not true. That's a, uh, that is a uh, erroneous idea, I'll be nice. That's an, erroneous, that's an erroneous idea that people have. I grew up uh, as a young child in a Baptist church and I'd heard that Sunday was the Sabbath and that you're to keep it holy. I was taught that my whole life. And so once I got older, once I got saved at age 26 and I started studying the Bible, especially when I went through Bible college and seminary, I gained insight and knowledge to realize the Sabbath is really Saturday. 
And it starts at sundown on Friday and ends at sundown on uh, Saturday. And so it's always the same. But the idea behind it was you were to cease your work and you were to focus upon God and you were to celebrate God. It was to be a good time. It wasn't supposed to be drudgery or restrictive type uh, things in your life. It was to allow you an opportunity to spend time with God and to observe. The Sabbath was also a sign of the old covenant. Okay, God said this is a sign of the old covenant. Go in your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at two passages in Exodus. So when we do this one, just stay there. But I'll show you when it was first given. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath, the Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it, you shall, you shall do no work, you and your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is with you in the gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And he rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 31. Exodus 31. Exodus 31 and verse 16. Exodus 31 and 16. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. Who, who's supposed to keep the Sabbath? Children of Israel. Children of Israel. Why? Because it relates to the old covenant. Okay. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generation as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel. Yet again, the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. So the idea for it is they are to rest and be refreshed to celebrate God. Why is not the Sabbath given to the Christian in the new covenant? It is not given to the Christian in the new covenant because the old covenant is fulfilled with the new covenant. Jesus Christ fulfilled it. Jesus Christ came as a male. If you were to look up here and this podium right here represents the cross, okay? And from your viewpoint, this side would be considered Old Testament. This side over here would be New Testament. Or this side over here would be Old Covenant. This side would be New Covenant. The Old Covenant looked forward to the coming of Messiah, the new covenant looks forward to eternity because we've looked back to what he did on the cross. See the difference? The old covenant, the Sabbath, was a sign and it, and it, and it looked back to what God did in his creation. In the new covenant, which fulfills the old covenant, the new covenant looks forward to eternity. 
Jesus said, do this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me and look forward to when I come because I won't drink of it again until I come in my kingdom. So it's a forward looking thing. It's to look forward. Jesus fulfilled all the old covenant in the new covenant. Christ fulfilled it for us. Christ kept it perfectly. We get credit for it. Okay. Turn to the book of Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Hebrews speaks of this covenant relationship. Look in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, having said that, I'll say this. Paul makes it pretty clear in the book of Colossians that, that one man, uh, you know, cherishes a day greater than another and another man this day or that day. If you want to hold the Sabbath, you're welcome to do that. That's your freedom in Christ. You have the opportunity to do that. But it's not a mandate to be put on everyone else. And if someone observes it to themselves, then it's for themselves is the idea behind it. So you look at Hebrews 10 and it says, for the law having a shadow of things to come. Now, what would that mean? A shadow? Well, the law is over here and it is a foretaste or it is a use of typology of a reality that would come. See, over here they would do animal sacrifices and as they did these animal sacrifices, they were looking forward to a day when Messiah, the Lamb of God, would come in a literal fulfillment of all that these old covenant sacrifices did. They brought a lamb that was without spot or without blemish and it's a picture of a Savior that's going to come without spot or blemish. The spot or blemish in this animal represents sin. It is a shadow of, a foretaste of what is to come. Jesus came without sin, having carried out and fulfilled all the law. So he goes to the cross without spot or blemish. Amen. Okay, that is the parallel. Shadow, image. Shadow, reality. Jesus is the reality or the fulfillment of all that was done there. So for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image. What's the very image? Jesus Christ of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. See, all the animal sacrifice did was it covered a man's sin to where that man could relate to God. But they, those priests would stand in that, in that temple continually. Even on the Sabbath, they would be slaughtering animals. Their work never ended. The piece, there was not a piece of furniture in the temple that a, that a, that a priest could sit down on. Because his work never ended. You had to continually sacrifice. You had to continually make atonement for sin. And then once a year, the high priest had to come on the scene and he had to go behind the veil in the Holy of Holies and make atonement through animal sacrifice for the whole nation. But all it would do is cover sin. And they were back at it again and again. But when Jesus came, he came to the altar and died on the cross and went into the presence of the father and sat down because he was finished. There was not continual sacrifice. There was one sacrifice and it was fulfilled in that person of Jesus Christ. Verse two, 
for then would they have not have ceased to be offered if, they, if it could take away sin, if it could make you perfect? For the worshipers, once purged, would have had no more conscience of their sin. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Understand the terminology here. In the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats covered sin. And it only covered sin so that when the real sacrifice came, the Lord Jesus Christ, he would take it away. And those folks that acted in faith and, and went through that system, it's accredited to them because they were looking to what God had said do. Y'all follow that? How does Jesus take away sin? Because an animal does not equal a human being. And so God says, this is the lamb of God that takes away, the, doesn't cover, this lamb's gonna take away the sin of the world. And so Jesus comes and when he dies, he's 100% man without sin and 100% God. He's also priest, he offers himself up. He's also sacrifice. He offers himself up, takes himself up, ascends to the Father. He does it all. He is our great high priest. He does the whole process for us by sacrificing himself on that cross as the Lamb of God and takes sin out of the way. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me, incarnation, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your, your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law. Then he says, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. He takes away the old covenant that he might establish the new covenant. He fulfills it all. He doesn't just push it off the table. He fulfills everything in it. He does every jot, every tittle, nothing left undone. Then he dies as a perfectly righteous man. No sin but your sin and my sin was placed upon him. He became our sacrifice. He became our lamb and he died in our place, was buried and rose again to show that God raised him up because he accepted payment for that sin. And we're on this side of the cross and we have the benefit of that, that my sin has been taken away. I have been perfected because as my sin's taken away, his righteousness, Credit for all this that he did is put to my account. Therefore, I don't have to do all what that says. Christ did it for me and I receive imputed righteousness from him. Then he says. Verse 10. <clears throat> By that will, we have been sanctified through the body of Jesus once for all. In other words, there's just one sacrifice, folks, for all sin. Okay? And every priest 
stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You have been perfected forever through the death of Jesus Christ. And you are those that are being sanctified. It is God working in your life as the believer. And so you see, go back to Matthew. The idea that they're doing work on that day is a man-made idea. And Jesus is going to explain that to them. Look at what he says. And so they, they lay this whole thing out there. Look, and they didn't really say this in a nice way. They, they are a phrase we could use today. Um, they were bent out of shape. Y'all understand what that means? They are hot under the collar. There's some other words, but I can't say them. I mean, they, but they were there. They were fully there. They had arrived. They, they were boiling over. Then he said to them, have you not read? Now that is, that is such a cutting statement by the Lord, by the sweet, kind little old Jesus to sit there and ask the masters of the law, haven't you read the Bible? I mean, how insulting would that be? But he's exposing that they're more concerned with man-made rules than they are God's law. They're preoccupied with their own rule book. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only the priest. The showbread was set out on the table in the temple and it was reserved just for priests because the bread was said to be holy unto the Lord. The only person who could touch it was a priest. And David and his men are moving through the countryside and they're famished. I mean, they're at the point to where they can't hardly walk anymore. They're so weak. David said, let's go in the temple. And they enter the temple and they go in there and they eat this bread to sustain their strength to where they can keep their activity going. Nothing happened to them. And they actually ate the holy bread in the temple. That's a death penalty, folks. That's a death penalty. Or, verse 5, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Those priests are in the temple sacrificing animals. Folks, if there's ever work, butchering an animal is work. Now, I'm not talking about a squirrel or cleaning a chicken at the table or something like this. I'm talking about slaughtering a calf. I'm talking about slaughtering a goat. I'm talking about hot, stinks, it's nasty. I mean, the, the whole thing, if you've ever been in a packing plant and watch how they slaughter animals and tearing the skin off that animal and disposing of the entrails and having to take the different pieces of meat and stuff, that is a lot of work. It is a difficult job. 
and, and it is hard work. And he said, the priests sit there in the temple and they're slaughtering animals all day on the Sabbath, and yet God doesn't condemn them. Why? Why? Because they're serving God. And so Jesus says this, but I say to you that in this place, there's one greater than the temple. Now this comment, they're so focused on the Sabbath that this comment flies over their head. Because I would have thought when I read this, I thought, ooh, man, who was the temple for? It was to worship God. It was so you could show your devotion to God and have your sin dealt with. And look at Jesus just slips this right into the, in the crease there. He says, but I say to you that in this place, there's one greater than the temple. Only one greater than the temple is God because the temple was there for God. And he says, there's one in this temple that's greater than the temple. And it just flies past them. They're so focused on the Sabbath thing. He said, but if you'd have known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. In other words, you wouldn't have condemned my disciples if you'd understood this. The Sabbath was so that man could enjoy God and to enjoy God, man is going to eat on that day, but he's going to eat unto the Lord and the Lord is pleased with it. Amen. He desires mercy over sacrifice. See, a lot of people don't understand that in religious circles. I mean, you see it, Jesus tears that thing apart. The story of the great Samaritan, you got a priest and a Levite coming down the road. This guy's beat to a pulp on the side of the road and one of them goes around him. The other one actually crosses the road to get around him and leave him there. Why? Because they've got to go worship God and they don't want to be defiled by touching somebody that's injured on the side of the road. People will take their religion and use it as a way to be cruel and uncaring towards people. And Jesus said, I'd prefer you to have mercy over sacrifice. Yeah. Be merciful. Be merciful. That's what he's saying. These men are hungry. Don't be all hung up on your rules. Be merciful because their intention and purpose is they're following God. Because right. yeah. it says Jesus went through, they're following Jesus. See, they don't even understand this. This is so far over their head. He says, you got this temple that you, that you love and you pro proclaim is so great. He said, there's a guy standing in the midst of here that's greater than the temple. They don't even pick that jab up. They're back on the Sabbath thing and they're mad about that. He says, for... The Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. The Sabbath was set apart to celebrate God. And Jesus said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You know what he's saying? I'm God. You know what he says when he says, there's one greater than the temple here? He's saying, I'm God. He's not using those exact words. He doesn't say, I am God. But my, my soul, if you sit there and say, I'm greater than the temple, you have to be God. If you say you're Lord of the Sabbath, you have to be God. And so Jesus takes it a step further. He says, now when he departed from there, he went into their synagogue. So he leaves from there and goes straight into the synagogue. I can promise you this, they're hot on his tail. They're right there with him, man. They're shuffling along their little robes and stuff, man. All religious and pious and stuff, and they're following him in there, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. His hand was drawn up, club-handed, kind of like Larry is this morning, right, Larry? 
he had surgery this week on his hand. But his hands all withered up. And they asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That he might accuse them. See, he's saying, I'm going to heal this guy's hand. I just want to ask you, is it lawful to do this on the Sabbath? He's, he's mocking them is what he's doing, folks. He's wanting them to, to flare up. And look what he does. He said, then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. So he goes in there with this miracle and validates the claims that he's previously made. He said, you people, you're so blind. When you're, when you're walking or moving about to go to the temple or whatever, to worship, and you see a sheep and a falls down in a crevice on a rock, you're going to pull that sheep out of there. That's work under your rule book. But you do it because you know if you don't, that sheep is going to die. He said, this man sitting here in the synagogue with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and I'm going to heal him. And he does. You know why? Because he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. See, Jesus claims full authority over the Sabbath. That's, a, that's the position of God. Go to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. I said earlier, I'll say it again. I've wore my Sunday school class out on this passage. So we're going, you're in my Sunday school class. You just hang with me. It says, and again, he entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. And immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them not even near the doorway. And he preached the word to them. So what you have here, he's in his house and those houses in that day and time were built with flat roofs and people would put, they would sit up on top of their house. They would also put gardens on top of their house. They would take dirt up there. Most of the roof would be uh, thatch and stuff and then they'd pile dirt on it to insulate the roof, but they'd also use it to grow stuff on their rooftops. And so they're in this house, the house is packed and then outside the front door, it's packed. And every window in that house has people leering, trying to look in. They want to, they want to hear and they want to see what this man is doing that, that John has proclaimed is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They want to see what's going on. They want to see what's happening. So you've got a mass of people there. It says, then they came to him bringing a paralytic who is carried by four men. So you've got a man laid out on a mat, kind of like a stretcher bearer, and you've got a guy on each corner of that mat carrying this guy, walking down the road. This guy's paralyzed. Been paralyzed his whole life. He can't move anywhere. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken through they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now you can imagine the people sitting in this house and Jesus is teaching and talking and going on. And these people, wow, listen to this dude, man. Or whatever word they used back then. Listen to this guy. 
And uh, all of a sudden, dirt starts coming down from the ceiling. They're like, what the heck's going on? What's all that banging up there? These people up there are pickaxes. They're digging through the roof while Jesus is teaching. All of a sudden, everything caves in. Everyone moves out. And all of a sudden, whoop, 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 they lower this guy down on a mat in the middle of them. Now, folks, that'd be better than any smoke machine in a church, I promise you. You're going to get attention when you do something like that, brother. That is a laser light show to the ultimate right there. These people are keyed in, man. They're mobbing that place. They're pressing into the doorways and stuff. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. But some of the scribes who were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Now, what is a scribe? A scribe is the guy that kept the law, would, would write things down and was, was, would debate the finer points of the law. They were the, the assistants of the Pharisees, if you will. The scribes were sitting there reasoning in their heart. You know, they're sitting there. They're, they're, you just got to understand how religious people are. They get mad when people break their rules and they're seething on the inside. They're steaming. Kind of like some of y'all when I told you the Sabbath is not for Christianity, that it was fulfilled in Old Testament. Get over it. Come on, relax. <laughs> Quit hating in the middle of church, man. Get off that. Let's go. Let's go with what the Word says, okay? Let's go with what the Bible says, not tradition or culture. What does the Word of God say? Amen. Every day is holy to the Lord. Amen? Amen? Do you actually take a day off from God? No. Every day should be your Sabbath. You know why? Because Hebrews tells us Jesus is our Sabbath. Amen. My rest is found in him. And I, and I stay devoted to him. So these people are reasoning in their heart. And I'll bet this sent some shockwaves through them. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within himself, he said to them, why, do you, why are you thinking these hateful things about me? That's what he's saying. He says, why do you reason these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you will know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go your way to your house. And immediately he rose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that they were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. They were shocked. You think those religious people were happy with Jesus? Mm -mm, no, not happy at all. They were extremely angry with him. Matter of fact, if you were to go back and look at, at Matthew chapter 12, I'll read a passage to you. Right at, right at the end of when uh, he does that, I finished with verse 13. Uh, it says, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and he was restored as whole as the other. Verse 14 says, then the Pharisees went out and took counsel against them how they might destroy him. I mean, they're going to kill him for this. You know why? He's claiming to be God, folks. He's showing them he has authority over the Sabbath. He has authority over sin. But he's also going to show them that he has full authority over eternal destinies. 
Look at John chapter 8. We'll cover this in detail when we get to it. But you look at John chapter 8. And look what he says in the uh, 21st verse. Our focus verse is 24, but start with verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Now, you've got to understand that, uh, that Jesus is teaching the religious leaders again, the Pharisees. They come to him way back in the first part of chapter 8. And so he's laying it on the line again. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, are you from, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I'm outside this world. There's only one being outside this world, and that's Jesus Christ. Or God, if you'll be more specific. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe, look at this, that I am he, you will die in your sins. In other words, if you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sin. He's, he's showing that he has absolute, complete authority over their eternal destiny. He goes on, look at Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, look at verse 8 and 9. Luke 12, verse 8 and 9. Also, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, also will confess before the angels of God. So obviously, he's sitting in some position of judgment or rulership in judgment. I mean, if you had a very naive understanding, you would at least conclude that. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Wow. John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, verse 22. He just outright states it here. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Why? I and the Father are one. Okay? But he's making it very clear that he is going to be the one that sits in judgment. Verse 27, uh, 26, back up 26. John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, the voice of God. They knew that, but Jesus is saying, that's my voice they're going to hear. I'm the one they're going to hear. Jesus is setting forth his divine authority by proclamation. We're going to look next week at his divine authority in application. But right now he's doing it by proclamation. 
He's saying, I have authority over the Sabbath. I have authority over sin. I have authority over your eternal destiny. Those are things only possessed by God. So all he is saying and he's saying very plain and very clear, I'm God by the very authority that I have here on earth. And that's who Jesus is. Just like I said, he fulfilled the whole Old Testament. And by fulfilling that, he comes to the cross as a Jewish male, having lived that law perfectly, dies as a sinless sin bearer on the cross. And your sin and my sin was placed upon him. He becomes our, and he can take away sin because he's man. He's equal to us. But on the other hand, he's also God. And he'd go right into the presence of God. And so we are on this side of the cross. And as we look back in faith, we believe in Jesus Christ. And what does the Bible tell us? We are forgiven of our sin. We have imputed righteousness. See, I preached a funeral recently for a guy that had been a notorious gang leader. Notorious. Horrible guy. And uh, he came to faith in Christ. And, and trusted Christ and demonstrated that numerous ways. And I shared with those people there in that crowd. I said, him being forgiven of his sins is not enough to get in heaven. If, if you could get rid of all your sin, you still couldn't go into heaven. And your sin is not just what you've done. Sin is seen three ways. It's words, thoughts, and deeds. And you've got to have all that sin taken out of the way. But at that point in time, it only makes you neutral. It makes you without sin. But you still, as a human being, don't have enough holiness to come into the presence of God. And so what God does is that not only does he take away our sin, he imputes or transfers into our account his perfect righteousness. So as Jesus lived on this side of the cross and kept all the law perfectly, fulfilled every jot and tittle of it, when he dies on the cross and when you believe on him, yes, your sin is forgiven, but God also transfers to your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you are perfected forever. So it's such a misnomer for people to say, well, if I just clean up my life, I say, okay, I'll give you that. Let's just say you can. You can't, but let's just say you clean up your life and you start living a, a perfectly moral life. Ha, ha, ha. But we're, we're going to say that you do that. What do you do about all that sin that you did beforehand? Do you think God just brushes that off? No. And, but let's say he does and it's all gone. How are you going to have enough righteousness to come into the presence of God? Because God himself says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. He doesn't accept any of our righteousness. So where can I get righteousness to come into the presence of God? Because anything that is not as righteous as God will be consumed in his presence. You will be destroyed in the presence of God. He cannot tolerate sin. It is burned in his presence. The only way you can get into the presence of God is God has to give you or transfer to your account the righteousness that Jesus Christ has done. 
That way when you get, when you die, you go into the presence of God, not because it's measured off of what you did. That has to do with your reward. But you get into the presence of God is fully what God does in your life in the fact that he takes away your sin and transfers into your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That word pros means face to face with the Lord. You will look the Lord straight face to face, but you'll be just as righteous as him because God has given it to your account. So when, so when Jesus looks at you on the day you die, you stand in the presence of him, he's looking at his perfect righteousness and he is perfect God. That's what the gospel is, folks, is that God not just forgives our sin, but he gives us righteousness so we can come into his presence and stay there for all eternity. He has perfected forever those that come to him forever. God did that. So you have to come to the conclusion based on Jesus's authority. He has authority over the Sabbath. He has authority over sin. He has authority over our future destiny. He has to be God. He has to be God. Now, John's going to work that out and show how that's done. But I'm trying to lay the groundwork on the front end to show you Jesus is God. This is the question today. Do you have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ? Have you been forgiven of your sin? And has God transferred your account, his righteousness? Because that is the only way you can get into his presence. If you hadn't, quit relying on your works. Quit believing in some false idea that somehow God's going to let you get away. I, I believe when I was lost, I believe I called it the ladder rule. That it's like a ladder, there's rungs on a ladder and religious dudes is way up here. And I was an old lost Marine and then an old lost correctional officer. Boy, I was down there now. I'm going to tell you what. I was in the belly of the beast, man. I was in the But it was just enough for me to get that last rung. That's all I'd take. I said, look, I'll hold your, your garden if I have to. Just let me into heaven. That's all. And I always believed I'd sneak in there on the last rung. That is a delusion of the human heart is what it is. There's no one sneaking in. There's no one less righteous than others. Everyone will come with the same righteousness because that same righteousness is transferred to their account. Your only hope is your sins to be forgiven and the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you. And Jesus himself said, if you do not believe in me, you're going to die in your sin. The only hope is to believe in him. Believe in him today. Quit relying on that stuff and say, Jesus, I believe you are the true and living God that died for me, was buried and raised again. And I believe you and I trust you for my eternal destiny. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you loved us enough to go to the cross and sacrifice yourself on our behalf. That you made a perfect plan that we might have eternal life and an eternal place with you. My prayer is today, Father, if there's one here who's never trusted you that they would, and that those of us that have trusted you, Father, we would live in a manner and a way that pleases you. And we would seek to live in that rest that we have in Jesus Christ every day of our life. 
that we would celebrate you and worship you every day. For it's in Christ's name we pray, Lord. Amen.